Good evening. It's the economy, stupid. Yes, that's the issue, I think, that will dominate domestic politics for the next couple of years and probably the general election itself. And I say that on the day when inflation goes up by a further 2%. The CPI is now at 9%. Interestingly, the retail price, price index, which is how we used to measure inflation, is showing 11%. And the last time it was there, well, let's say back in the early 1980s, interest rates were 13%. Today, they're 1%, which gives you a clue the direction in which they're going to go. I have been pretty critical for the last few nights, weeks actually, of the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew, out to lunch, Bailey, who's been asleep at the wheel. Uh, but it's not just him. Number 10, the government have gravely underestimated what was happening, the inflationary cycle that was beginning within the UK economy. And by the way, this is all way before the invasion of Ukraine and the price shocks we've seen in some of those commodities. Let's just take a look at Boris Johnson in October last year being asked on Sky News whether he thought inflation was a threat. Are you worried about inflation? And uh, and, and I'm very encouraged. Are you worried about by, inflation? I'm very encouraged by the growth are you that worried? I'm seeing. I, I understand. You're, are you worried about inflation? Well, people have been people have been worrying about inflation for a very long time. Uh, I'm looking at robust economic growth, uh, and, and and by the way, those those fears have been unfounded. Well. These, these fears, these fears have been unfounded. He made it perfectly clear that was as recently as October. So the establishment got this completely and utterly wrong way before the invasion of Ukraine. And now the government is in some trouble on this issue. You see, traditionally, we always think of a Conservative Party as being the one that wants to cut taxes, not wanting to put them up. We tend to think of the Conservative Party as running much smaller budget deficits than the Labour Party, but since 2010 they've grown hugely. And on the general economic theme, here was Boris Johnson in the Commons today. Uh, look, uh, this, this government is not in principle in favour of higher taxation. Uh, of course not. Uh, but what, what we want to do what, they don't want to put. They, of course, they want. They love it. They love it, Mr. Speaker. They love putting up taxes. Oh, this was. Labour meow. Uh, Labour puts up taxes. Catch me out. Labour put up taxes. Uh, what we what we want to do. What we want to do is take a sensible approach, governed by the impact on investment and jobs, Mr. Right. Speaker. And that is the the test of a strong economy. Well, you can see they are in some trouble. It's all well and good talking about jobs, 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 but we're basically at full employment. Highest employment levels we've had for 50 years, and there are basically quite severe shortages in many parts of the economy. But here's the question. We need to have a robust debate about where we go from here, not just look back and say they've made a mess of it. And that's where, in a functioning democracy, opposition comes in. Do Labour have the answers. Let me know what you think. Farage at GBnews.uk. I really don't think they do. And one little piece of news. I spoke just before the show to a reputable private pollster who tells me that Keir Starmer's personal ratings have fallen about 15% 
over the course of the last month. Much of that, nothing to do with economics, but to do with the fact that if you put yourself up as the paragon of model virtue and behaviour and then get dragged into difficulties over Beergate, people don't like it. So do Labour have the answers? Well, they've got one really big, big policy, and that is putting big taxes on the oil and gas co companies. That appears short term to have support in the opinion polls. Who knows? Maybe the Conservatives will follow it. Well, joining me is a man who's been around uh, economics and crises over many, many years, Jonathan Portis, who, of course, was the chief economist to the Cabinet from 28, 2008 to 11, and currently your Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London. As I say, I've been accusing the governor of being asleep at the wheel and, and, and the government too, underestimating what was coming. Do you agree with me that the inflationary signs were there before the invasion of Ukraine? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, oil and energy prices had already gone up um, and that's most of what we're seeing now. Food prices were already going up, um, in part because of Brexit, as some research has recently shown. We'll argue that another night. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid uh, it's there in the numbers. I mean, uh, surely what we could do is reduce tariffs on food we import from all uh, over the world, but uh, we haven't done it. We could, and that's, yeah. that's actually a pretty good idea. It won't make much difference, I'm afraid, because tariffs are basically, they're just not that high. And of course, you know, the reason food prices have gone up is because we import a lot of food from the EU, and we don't charge tariffs tariffs on food from the EU, but there are new custom checks, there's a lot of new paperwork, somebody's got to pay for that, and it's you and me I and agree. everybody I, else. Look, I agree, it was a rotten deal, we could have done better. Anyway, anyway but, but, but you're, you're right. They missed this. Um, so Ukraine has obviously made matters worse, yep. um, but, uh, but you're quite right, um, this was coming along. Um, I think, in fairness, we do have to step back, and regardless of what I said about Brexit, most of this inflation is a global phenomenon, mm -hmm. and when oil and energy prices go up, we in Britain, because we're a net importer of energy, we become poorer well, we on average. Yes, I mean, we, shouldn't, we should not be a net importer of energy, and that's another separate that's another debate, story. which I feel but, very but strongly the, about. But for the moment, um, it makes us poorer. And so a lot of this debate is not about, you know, are we going to be poorer? We are going to be poorer. It's how you share the pain. Um, and I thought, in your point about inflation being 9%, that's correct, mm -hmm. but uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies produced some very interesting analysis today showing that if you're in the poorest part of the population, your inflation rate is much closer to 11%, whereas if you're in the richest part, yes. it's much closer because to 7 Because a higher proportion of your expenditure is uh, as to what you earn, is energy and food. No, and I, yeah. I completely understand that. But there's also the point, isn't there, that if you massively increase the money supply, if you massively increase the amount of money that's there in the economy, which you do through borrowing, and government, of course, has been playing all sorts of tricks ever since 2008 and hugely increasing it, but actually there's more money chasing the same number of goods and services. Um, that's, that's true up to a point. It's hard to see that in the data. Remember, um, as I say, this inflation is global. Um, some countries have done more have had but their money, higher, but their higher money or lower been, Money creation in America, etc., mm. has been yes, similar, hasn't it, or even higher. If you look at inflation, Switzerland, actually, for example, has done quite a lot of QE. Yeah. Inflation rate's quite low, for no, reasons no one quite understands. No. <laughs> but it's not clear that, the ver that, that inflation is well, primarily explained by money. It, this, the, this bout of inflation, at least, is primarily a supply shock. What happens from here is much more down to central banks. Well, look, economics is an art, not a science, and we know Pretty, that, yes, and, and that's, that's always been that's the case. Fair. But what's interesting is, you know, I made the point in my introduction yeah. that we need a robust debate 
about where we go from here, yeah. given just how horribly many of those on fixed incomes, pensioners, low incomes, benefits. I mean, if you're on benefits, yes. your benefits have risen by 3.1%. Absolutely. And we have inflation yeah. nigh on double digits. Yeah. Do Labour have the answers? Now, this big policy that they're pushing, which is let's tax the oil and gas companies yeah. and give people a rebate on their bills. Do the sums add up on that? Um, well, the sums add up, but not to the big, the big policy that you want. And, you know, you describe it as a big policy. It's not. Well, it's At a best, sell. it's a medium-sized policy. Um, so the, if you look at the figures, um, it looks like they might raise about £2 billion from that. That won't go very far. No, it won't go very far. Remember, Sunak's package back in December was worth about £9 billion. It's generally agreed by you and by, I think, pretty much everyone else as being yeah. wholly inadequate. So to do the sorts of things that you're talking about, to restore those cuts to benefits and pensions, um, to make sure that nurses and teachers get at least a decent salary increase, not a huge pay cut. Um, you're looking at a package of it's got to be between five and 15 billion. So is Labour's windfall tax going to pay for that? No, it's not. No. Sure not. And what else does Labour have to offer? I can't quite work it out. Um, well, I think, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not no, here. No, 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 I, 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 I know that. But, but uh, no, I, 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 I agree. I don't think that Labour's response is equal to the scale of the challenge here either. I think uh, on, that, on that you're right. Um, I mean, one thing I would note in terms of where, you know, we are all going to be poorer. A lot of this is about how you share the pain. Uh, the very interesting thing about the labour market statistics yesterday was pay is actually going up quite a lot on average. Um, maybe by its, in nominal terms, by its highest in a, in a very long time. But where is it going up fastest? Um, bankers' bonuses. And the highest earners. And the highest earners. Mm. Um, and frankly, we were talking before about mm. who does well out of these crises, economists. And it's true, people like me, economists, lawyers, tax lawyers, accountants, consultants, we're actually, it has to be said, doing quite well. So if you want to find the money, um, that's where I would start. Yes, I'm sure that's right. And Johnson today is saying that in principle the Conservatives are a low-tax party and Labour always put taxes up. I mean, what are, they, what are Labour saying on taxes? I mean, are they saying that if they get into government, they'll keep taxes more or less where they are? Again, it's not a clear message I'm getting. I don't think there is a clear message. And I think, to be fair, you know, uh, who knows what the position of the economy you know, will be at the time of the next election. And I don't think it's sensible for any party to say, well, in 2025, we will plan to put up this rate of tax by 1% or this rate of tax. No. But I think you can send a direction of travel. Um, so if you were asking, where, what would I, putting a progressive agenda, want to say, I'd say, look, we should be taxing um, income, and some forms of consumption in this country much less, we should be taxing wealth and property much more, because that's really where the money is well, under tax wealth. Labour may do that, but of course... They haven't done it yet. But of yeah. course, Tony Blair did the opposite to that and won a big majority by kind of reassuring middle-class, above-average income earners that actually he wasn't going to put taxes up. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's the way Labour will go. A final thought, Jonathan, if I may. The most difficult question of all, of course. Where does inflation go from here? Um, I think that, um, you know, of course, I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. But beyond that, assuming that Ukraine becomes some sort of stalemate, mm -hmm. I think inflation will fall back pretty rapidly. Um, 
you know, um, in terms of prices actually rising in the second half of this year, of course, it'll still show up in the headline figures. We measure those a year in, in arrears, yeah, as it were. Yeah. But in terms of will prices be rising in the second half of the year, I don't think so. Remember, and I, you mentioned my term at the cabin office back in 2008, 2011. Oil prices went to something like 130 mm. something dollars mm. a barrel in the summer of 2008. By um, winter of 2008, early 2009, they'd fallen by about two thirds. So, what happens if you have actually a big run up in oil prices, rise in interest rates, a nasty recession? Actually, energy prices fall quite quickly. So, I don't want to make predictions. No. It's not impossible that a year from now, our big problem might not be inflation anymore. It might be that it might be growth and employment. Jonathan Borders, thank you very much. And I have to say, as a former commodities trader, predicting these things is incredibly difficult, which is why I always like to put the other chap on the spot. In a moment, the World Health Organization has a great annual congress coming up at the weekend. Some proposals there to give them powers by which they could actually tell national governments to impose lockdowns. Would this represent an unacceptable loss of sovereignty or are those fears somewhat overblown? Does Labour have the answers to what's going on in the British economy? I really don't think they do. Jonathan Porters uh, didn't think they did either. I wonder what you think. Some of your reactions. One viewer says, this is a bit strong. Keir Starmer is a despicable man who prosecuted Julian Assange for exposing war crimes. Labour are totally unelectable and they're a laughing stock. Well, that's a view, I suppose. Ian says, what is certain is this government doesn't have any answers because they don't care about the question. In whether they care or not, whether they relate or not with the economic problems of ordinary folk, they do, of course, want to get re-elected. Andrew says, a lot of the public don't know who Keir Starmer is. Another says, many half-interested voters think that Corbyn is still the Labour leader. Well, there we are. Not an overwhelming show of support for Keir Starmer. And as I said to you a moment ago, private polling that I've seen just this afternoon suggesting that his own personal approval ratings have fallen very sharply in the course of the last month. You'll hear that story across mainstream media in about one or two weeks from now. Now, the World Health Organization, a big globalist structure, always seeking more power for itself. Not the kind of organization, of course, that I will naturally be inclined to support and who did a pretty rotten job in many ways during the pandemic. And we'll go into that in a moment in some detail. But they have a grand world assembly beginning on the 22nd of May. And one of the things on the table is a pandemic accord. Every country in the world has been invited. Oh, I'm sorry, Taiwan's not invited. China doesn't want that. But pretty much every other country in the world will be there in the room and asked to sign a pandemic accord. It won't actually be a treaty because that would need two-thirds majority in the American Senate and they'd never get it. And China doesn't sign international treaties. But it will be an accord. And within that accord will be sub-provisions that are perfectly sensible for us to share data um, about, about viruses, about effective treatments. But in there is a provision that says that the WHO could instruct governments to put in place national lockdowns. Now, that on the face of it looks like a completely unacceptable loss of sovereignty. Whether, without it being a treaty, they really have the power to impose this upon us or not, I think is open to question. But it's perhaps time we learned a little bit more 
about the World Health Organization and its pretty serious failings. At least that's my view. And I think Professor Angus Dalgleish, uh, and you're a professor, of course, of oncology at St George's Hospital Medical School, you have been in this country, I think, from early on in the pandemic, mm -hmm. one of the biggest critics of the World Health Organization. Absolutely. Well, first of all, the World Health Organization should have been able to have stopped and shut down this, uh, this uh, event that occurred. And uh, they went along with the Chinese narrative. Uh, they should have uh, instigated procedures that would completely have prevented this coming to the West. But they didn't because uh, Tedros Gabrusius was under basically the, the thumb of the CCP, the China, and he was instructed not to do things, to look the other way while they got on and dealt with it and that was catastrophic so we had the situation where there was all the lockdown going in in China and yet the international flights from Wuhan were continuing many flights a day uh, spreading it all over the world no it was an absolute disgrace and, and you say that, that the boss is under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. I mean, why do you say that? I say that because uh, when they came for her to be elected a new head of the WHO, it goes back that China were very annoyed that with SARS-1 got out, and that, be that became the, the, the first uh, yeah. little pandemic, which is much easier controlled, they were really furious that they'd been criticised over the, the handling of it. So they wanted to make sure that in future they could control the leader. So this um, had Ross uh, fellow, he, he, come, he came from Ethiopia, he's not a doctor, he was put forward and massive rallying around by China, put our man in place. Well he goes into place, he really doesn't know what he's and doing. he's not a doctor. He's not a doctor. He's been told what to do by the CCP. It's an absolute disaster because he was unable to do what people have been trained. Put it this way, one of the reasons they've been very uh, um, uh, uh, complacent in this country about the uh, infection coming over here was Jeremy Hunt was assured by Sal uh, Sally Davis that her friends in the WHO ah. had assured her that should such an event occur yes. in China and it was inevitable yeah. I mean from SARS-1 there has been six major leaks of viruses out of these so-called high security laboratories it's inevitable it occurs and it makes me really wonder why on earth they thought that this couldn't be the source of it that it that leaked from a laboratory but she assured them that her friends in the WHO would never ever mm. allow it to, to come over. Yes, yes but those yes. friends were before this Tedros there, who was put there as what some people say is a, well, a useful idiot. I guess they're uh, strong words, they're strong mm -hmm. words, you clearly feel them with great passion. I do. But now he wants more power, now he wants a global pandemic accord. Yes. Well, that means that they'd have the power. Or would they really have the power to impose national lockdowns? I would be terrified if they had the power to do that. But remember, China led the way, really, with this lockdown. And so Tedros would take it on and everybody follows suit. China's got first-hand experience. It knows what it's doing. We must all go for the lockdown. There was only one man, and he's my hero, and that's Anders Tegnell, mm. the, uh, the, the health man from Sweden, yep. who got it absolutely right, and I was 100% behind him. And now you know, Sweden a far lower well, there is a chap called Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, who, yes. I, think, who I think, you know, yes, and if you compare Florida's um, death rates with California's and, 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 and what happened with the, with, with the economies, you can see that DeSantis taking a much easier, softer approach was right. I totally agree. In fact, the harder the lockdown, the bigger the deaths. It's yeah. actually when you stand back and look at Extraordinary. that. Extraordinary. So, the British delegation. 
I think that the British, what should they do? The British delegation should seriously consider um, dislocating, uh, dissociating themselves from this whole thing because it is frightening. Is that if they sign up and go along with it, they want to? I mean, the way we've handled the uh, pandemic is they want to uh, deny responsibility and shift the blame to everybody else. So that puts them in a vulnerable thing. Oh, we'll sign up to the WHO mm. and then we'll do what they say. Then we can't get the blame. This would be an absolute disaster because China would be wanting everybody. So we want to the do. British delegation to do something. We want the British delegation to stand up and say this is totally unacceptable. Uh, you messed up in a big time. Yeah. We've got a pandemic which should never ever occurred. And uh, I think that there, you know, there obvious has to be some reparations with well, regards to culpability. Let's see here. what they do, Angus. Thank yes. you for coming on, giving us your thoughts Thank on you. this. And we're going to continue uh, to follow this story through the next couple of weeks as the WHO deliberates. And we'll see in particular how the British delegation behaves. Well, let's go to somebody who perhaps has a slightly different point of view. Dr. Barrett Pankania is a friend of this program, a senior consultant in communicable disease control, and he joins me down the line this evening. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Nigel. Good evening. good evening. Now, look, I think all of us understand that it makes a lot of sense globally for us to share information about viruses, about uh, in the way that South Africa did uh, when we get variants and, and, and they told the world exactly what the spike protein looked like and all the rest of it and it makes sense to share best medical practice in terms of treatment and, and to share you know, all of these things together, which vaccines were, all of those things. I'm not for one minute suggesting we shouldn't have a format, a forum, by which we can do that. But the WHO, many of us question its integrity. So, Nigel, the way I look at it, and I've been reading the proposals here, and, and the proposals are very clear, having read what is proposed, and the proposals are to make it better globally. In other words, it's the early detection of viruses, the early reporting of it, the coordinated engagement of governments, that is the United States, China, European Union and the others. And it is about equitable use of global resources. They do not talk about taking over the management of the pandemic in the United Kingdom, for example. And in any case, that would be impossible. So the proposals that I have read and understood are very clear, which is about making it better preventing pandemics. We really need to work on prevention. And then if a pandemic were to arise, how we can have a global coordinated effort in looking after the globe together. So Nigel, let me share something okay, with you. Okay. What, we, what we went down the route, which was contrary to WHO regulations, which was as follows, Re not regulations, but advice share the vaccines, share the vaccines globally, uh, uh, risk group by risk group by group by group by group. What the European Union, United States, United Kingdom did was immunize its entire population item by item. And therein, then we end up needing boosters because the pandemic is raging in Africa and they keep on sending variants our way. Whereas if we had suppressed infections in our home country, and elsewhere, we may not have had as many variants and we would be in a better place today. 
Barrett, Barrett, that, that, that may be true. That may be true. But in the end, at the end of the day, sovereign countries make sovereign decisions for their people, and in many cases, they're directly accountable to their, to their yes. electorates. I mean, here's the point. Here's the point. I'm with you on a forum for cooperation. Of course I am. But written in the proposals is this idea that if a pandemic occurs or if the WHO declare a pandemic to be, that they can tell member countries, nation states, to impose lockdowns. Is that not unacceptable in a democratic modern world? And, and <laughs> Nigel, my reading of it is I don't see it, right? So I do not okay. think the WHO can tell member states, sovereign nations, how to handle their outbreak. But it is really important that nations of the world work together on all aspects of infection control and management. I do not see anywhere where the WHO would say to the United Kingdom, you will have a lockdown. I don't see it. It wouldn't work. We will manage our own outbreaks right, and with our own uh, agencies. Well, I hope so. Well, I hope so. I, I hope I so. Am, and a I'm final thought. Absolutely sincere. Uh, you know, no, no, I understand what you're saying. A final thought, please, from you. Does it make sense for a World Health Organization who covered up uh, for China in the early days of the outbreak to be run by somebody who isn't even a doctor? Does that make sense? Or does this thing need some big reform or perhaps even replacing? We need a lot of reform. We need to support the WHO because that's all we have. The trouble is, the way the funding goes, China, United States, United Kingdom, European Union, that funding makes the WHO walk on eggshells. On the subject of uh, whether the Director General of the WHO is a doctor or not is irrelevant. What is relevant is, does he possess the right skills? And of course he does, very much so. Uh, look, look at another example. We have United Kingdom Health Security Agency, I am a medical doctor, consultant, communicable disease control. There are many of my equivalent who are not medically trained, but they are accredited to be competent in dealing with outbreaks. So it's irrelevant whether they're a doctor or not. The relevance is, right. are you okay. competent? Okay. okay. Barrett, as ever, thank you for joining me here on the programme on GB right. News. Thank you. Well, he pays your money, folks, and takes your choice. But uh, I have to tell you, we're going to watch very carefully the final wording that is agreed at this WHO big jamboree. Now, on other subjects, Black Lives Matter. Yes, you remember police officers taking the knee. You remember the chanting that was going on, the bullying that was going on. Anybody that opposed Black Lives Matter was a terrible person and should be cancelled and made to pay a price. I know that because I was one of them. Well, from the start, I warned about this organization and they raised $90 million in 2020. Uh, much of it from big, big corporations, global billionaires, but a lot of it from ordinary folk who genuinely thought this was an organization that was campaigning for racial justice. Uh, my view very strongly is what they've done is to cause much, much deeper divisions. But it's always interesting, isn't it, to follow the money. So we have Patrice Collors. She was the founder of the 
thing, she's run the thing, and it must be very, very good for the father of her child to have earned nearly a million dollars producing live events and other creative services. Her brother, he's done quite well out of this too. Yes, he's earned $840,000 for security. And one of her fellow directors has earned 2.1 million quid. Um, and she's received £73,000 towards a variety of charter flights. And the other thing's interesting is the way in which Patrice Collors has built her property portfolio, her real estate portfolio. She's been able to buy four houses over the course of the last few years to a value of $3.2 million. And the organisation not only has grand buildings in Toronto, but it spent $6 million buying a nice seven-bedroom pad out in Los Angeles, and that is there to put up staff um, and to record videos. Follow the money. I always said BLM was a rotten organisation and they are proving it. Now, yesterday was a really great day, I thought. The Queen was there opening the Elizabeth line. She'd been seen over the previous weekend at the Windsor Horse Show and she's been looking, well, she may not be exactly running around, but she's been looking good. Make the most of this jubilee that begins on the 2nd of June and goes on for four days. Make the most of this incredible woman that has been our Queen, because what we've got coming up next really, really worries me. Have a look at this. This was Prince Charles talking to the World Economic Forum, another big globalist club. And uh, hey, this is what he said to them in 2020. Yes, we have no alternative, because otherwise, unless we take the action necessary, and we build uh, again in a greener and more sustainable and more inclusive way, then we will end up having more and more pandemics and more and more disasters from ever, ever accelerating global warming and climate change. So this is the one moment, as, uh, as you've all been saying, when we have to, 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 to make uh, as much progress as we can. And I'm worried about this and I'm worried about the hysteria that is being taught to young people from a very early age right through school. We're all going to die because of global warming caused in this country. And we've seen a spate in Edinburgh and in parts of South London of Range Rovers and other big cars having their tyres slashed by groups who say that people who drive these cars will end civilization on this planet. This is getting worse and worse. People are being radicalised. People are being made to be very, very fearful. They're getting a one-sided argument and it is wrong. And I worry that if Prince Charles is king, he'll get one pushing that agenda. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Olechki Goncharenko. He is an MP from Ukraine. I want to talk to him about Ukraine today, what is happening in Mariupol, and is any form of peace deal possible? Welcome back. It's Talking Pints. Yes, it's that time of the day. I'm joined by Oleksiy Goncharenko, a member of parliament from Ukraine. Welcome to the programme. Cheers. Very pleased to see you here. Now, you're very much from a... Nice beer. Good. Good, yeah. good. Thank well, you. You probably need cheering up at a time like this. Yeah, a little bit, yes. It's, um, and we'll get to that. Now, you've been, you know, 
from a political family, he'd been in the parliament, been very active for a long, long time. And you've even been kidnapped at one point over the years. Uh, Tell us uh, about that. Fortunately, uh, there was an attempt. Yes. And to uh, catch those who were preparing it, it was uh, announced publicly in the parliament, and I was at the moment already a member of the parliament. It was five years ago, I think, and uh, it was announced that I am kidnapped, and those who wanted to do this, they decided that everything happened and they went to pay money for those who should do this. Um, and uh, they were caught up at the moment. Uh, been hot, we say. I don't know, in English so you language, were, been hot. You were used I mean, as a, a sort of sting operation almost. Yes, absolutely. And it was, yes, kind of. But it was not uh, the worst story. It was two times uh, Russian security service tried to kill me and they ordered people and sent them and uh, then those who were guilty in these they just they exchanged them for Ukrainians prisoners of war I mean so Moscow took these people from Ukraine I, I think they in this moment they signed that that was that was Moscow who prepared all of this and yet you were you went to University of Moscow I mean yeah I mean did you at that time you know, going back 20 years or so when yeah. you were there did you have a positive attitude towards Russia then? absolutely I was born in Odessa. Odessa is the biggest city on the Black Sea. Yep. It's in the southern part of Ukraine. It's mostly Russian-speaking. And my mother tongue, my first language, uh, is Russian. My second language, second mother tongue, I say, is uh, Ukrainian. But first language was Russian. And uh, I know more poems of Russian poets than Putin. That's for sure. Uh, no questions about this. So, I, 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 uh, till 2014, I thought that Russia is a very close country. Yes, Ukrainian future is in Europe, but together with Russia. So I believed in big Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok, you know, all this story. But then Putin showed everything to everybody that he is just dictator, tyrant, and he started war against Ukraine. And he showed us that his idea of Europe from Vladivostok to Lisbon, you know, we understood it like uh, Vladivostok should be like Lisbon. And he understood it like Lisbon should be like Vladivostok. And we don't want like this. No, they're obviously diametrically opposed views. I mean, Ukraine itself is a country that, with many troubles, corruption problems, political problems, all sorts of difficulties. But when we look at Donbass, when we look at that particular region, Donbass, and this extraordinary battle that's been going on over Mariupol, where... Uh, may I interrupt you for a you moment? You do. Uh, you said that this, yeah, there is corruption in Ukraine, unfortunately. Yeah. I can't say no. But, you know, it's not Ukrainian president who is uh, taking be giving beer to Putin. It's Schroeder. It's Chancellor of Germany. Well, well who is doing oh, it like oh, this? Look, you know, so I mean, I, when, mean, uh, I mean, about I get that. Uh, the same story about Ukraine is so. You know, for years we have heard that oh, Ukraine, you, you are so yes, your country are somewhere between Russia and Poland. You many problems you have, but now when Ukraine is attacked, everybody know. United Nations says 500 million people will suffer from hunger. There will, be, uh, there will be famine in the world because Ukraine is attacked. So it happened that Ukraine is a very important country to feed the world. Then it happened that Ukraine is a very important country for security of Europe. And uh, three, four, five, speaking about corruption, it's uh, thanks to Russian corruption that now Russian forces are not in Berlin, maybe, because they spent one trillion 
once again 1,000 billion euros yeah. for their army during the last year. Where listen, are they? I get it. So they, where is know, corruption? Well, well, I think that actually Mr. Putin has not got the army he wanted because yeah. a lot of that money's disappeared. No, I get that too. Absolutely. I get that too. I mean, look, on the point about Germany, here's the extraordinary thing. The gas that is keeping German industry and German lights on, having made themselves wholly dependent on Russia, that gas is still being transshipped, most of it through Ukraine. As I understand it, Ukraine is still being paid by Russia to transship that gas. I mean, doesn't that sound rather odd? Absolutely. Uh, when everything started, in the end of February, I addressed uh, my colleagues and saying, let's stop the transit. Mm. But then Europe asked us, Please oh, don't do this. Oh, the European Union. Absolutely. Of European course. Union. Of they course. They ask us, please of don't course. do this because we will, oh, we will freeze. Because what will we do? It's a heating season. March is very cold. Please don't do this. And there was a big discussion and we decided that, you just imagine, being attacked by Russia, being killed by Russia. Our people are killed. Our children are killed. Our women are raped. Our teenagers are raped. So it's awful what's happening. But we continued to pump the gas because Europe asked. And we showed that we are a reliable partner, even in such circumstances. But now we want to see something on the other side. Yeah. To see, okay, this was season. It was middle of the season end of February, but let's do everything that next winter uh, Europe is not dependent from Russian well, gas at all. We'll and we are see. ready to stop this we'll transit see. forever. We'll see. Unless you we stop it. See. Unless you stop it, I suspect, I suspect that Germany and, and, and Italy will still buy it. This epic battle that's been going on in Mariupol, the yeah. Azov battalion, yeah. huge amount of comment about the Azov. But, but by yeah. the way, none of the criticisms of Ukrainian corruption None of the criticisms, potential criticisms of the extreme right, neo-Nazi, some say nature of the Azov battalion. It's no, not true. None of this, none of this is a justification in any way for what Putin has done. But tell us the truth about Azov. You know, there's a lot of evidence that they are quite bad guys. Is that right? Is it no? Wrong? It's not right. Absolutely. Are there far right guys inside Azov? Yes, they are. But far right guys are everywhere. Are they in London? Far right guys. Uh, well, they're not organized. Uh, they're not organized in an army fighting on behalf of the country. It's not an army. It's absolutely regular unit, regiment of Ukrainian National Guard. That's not something battalion. It's not a gang. It's a regiment of Ukrainian National Guard. And never ever there are evidences of any war crimes committed by them. But please show me any evidence of any war okay, crimes well, committed by them. Never happened. It. Well, this, this will all come later. Has Mariupol now fallen, in your opinion? Yes, definitely. Mariupol is occupied by Russia. Azov style was the last stronghold, which they absolutely heroically, they are our heroes. And not only ours. I think that the heart of free world is beating now in Mariupol, in Azov style. I'm sure about this. And these guys, are, are, what they did, it's unbelievable. They are 300 Spartans. Uh, for 10 weeks, Having been in siege of Russian forces yeah. without anything, been bombed from, from, from I mean, for 24-7, uh, uh, they used everything, cluster bombs, phosphor bombs against them, chemical agents, everything, just to kill these people. And they holded the ground till the end. Now, yes, uh, we want to save their lives. And they received an order. And part of them already surrendered because they can't. They, everything is finished, so it's it's impossible to 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 continue forever. No, I, no, I can but see that. But we are very much I concerned about their life, and I hope very much. This morning I spoke 
with the least trust. And I ask, and I ask now here, using your tribune, and thank you very much for your yeah. invitation. Let help us to save these men and women. They are one of the best courageous warriors in this okay. world. And they are not any Nazis. They have never been. I know many of them personally. Many of them are Russian-speaking people. You know, when they are saying about Nazis, our president is Jewish. Uh, half of the population is uh, Russian-speaking and a little bit less. But, and nobody is touching them. I mean, nobody. And who is Nazi? Uh, Putin, well, who, I, I, who, who I, I, killed I, I, more Russian-speaking people of course, in the world this, than Hitler. This, of course, is the propaganda war that battles back and forth between no, both no, sides. No, no, it's not propaganda war. And, How and, many people are know, killed in Ukraine? Thousands. Just in Mariupol, more than 20,000 civilians 20, are killed. 90% of them are Russian-speaking. And when Putin is saying that he, he wants to defend Russian-speaking people, sorry, but he killed more Russian-speaking people than any person alive in this world. No, I get that. Do the people of Donbass region, do they want to stay part of Ukraine? Are you convinced of that? You know, do the people of Scotland all want to be part well, of the United well, Kingdom? Well, here's the point. Well, here's the point. Yeah. They were given a free and fair referendum. Absolutely. And they decided to stay part of it. Is, what I'm really getting to here with you, what I'm really getting to yeah. here is this. The, the narrative... But nobody occupied Scotland. There are, nobody, I don't know, no, 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 there are no, no. no like, coming army no, to occupy and, Scotland and, and to say, and we're since, here to help Scottish and people. And since 2014, there have been all sorts of, of contested territories and, yeah. and huge difficulties and complexities that a British audience couldn't possibly hope to understand of what's been going on in Donbass. But here's the key point that I really wanted to talk to you about tonight that really matters, I think. When I hear the rhetoric on all sides of this. And, and by the way, you know, well done Boris Johnson. He has given great support to your country and great leadership. Yes, that's absolutely you true. Know, no question about that. You know, I might criticize him for many other things he's done, but he's given leadership on this, and that's absolutely clear. He's made a decision. But here's the point. The narrative sounds like we all want to fight to the death, to fight to the end. And that worries me and scares me. You know, a boxed-in Vladimir Putin who may not still have the rational function and what that could mean, not just for Ukraine, but for much of the world. Is a peace deal possible? First of all, I need to answer about Donbass. That's important. Okay. Uh, only part of Donbass was occupied. Another part of Donbass was controlled by Ukraine. And there were any, no any, I mean, rallies against, against being in Ukraine, nothing. Also, there is no people of Donbass. That's are the same Ukrainians. Yes, like they have peculiarities. Like, like British people in, from Manchester are a little bit different from those from Glasgow <laughs> and from those in London. Well, 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 but they are even, all... Even from Liverpool. Uh, even from Liverpool, which are, yes, exactly. But they, but they this is the same people, absolutely. The same language, everything is the same. And there was nothing. I had, I had an educational cultural network in Ukraine. It is called Gonchurenko Centers. We have three of them in Donbass. And that was the most popular. They were coming to learn Ukrainian history, Ukrainian language. They were happy, absolutely. Donbass was developing all these years. Now it is destroyed by Putin. So all this story that people of Donbass want to okay, leave, okay. where are these? But I come, mean, where are any but, evidences but come of this? to the point. Come is to it, the point. Is a peace deal negotiable? Absolutely. Peace deal should be like this. Uh, Putin is taking his army out of Ukraine. Uh, we don't, when I'm uh, here, 
Let's save face Putin. First of all, he deserves to be beaten in his face, not to, to be saved. But... Don't, don't okay, but give him I, a way out. I, yes, I am going to do this. Yeah. Uh, we are not going to take Moscow. We don't want to take Putin's bunker and uh, committing him suicide like Hitler did. We don't want to execute Putin on the Red uh, Square in Moscow, no. We just want Russia and Putin to respect international law and to leave us alone. Leave us, <coughs> and that's all that. that we want. And should we? And, and that is absolutely clear that he could do this. It's not, he's not in corner. Be, it, Russia is the biggest country in the world. Walk over Siberia. Walk over all this huge, huge, huge uh, country, huge territory. Should we be negotiating with him at this time? Yes. Should we be? Why is the West not talking to him? Uh, Apart from the French president, the West is not talking to him. But the problem is to speak about what, as I understand, uh, to every person who is contacting him, he's saying all this old story about well, uh, there are Russia, there are Ukrainian Nazi. I want to defend Russian-speaking people. That's all. Goodbye. What is the sense of this? I mean, conversation. If there will be conversation, let's speak about how we are retreating from Ukraine. What will be after we will do this? Yeah. I am sure that the whole world will speak with him. But if the, the only thing that they... Uh, it's like uh, Prime Minister of Italy said. Italy was very sentimental to Russia. And Prime Minister of Italy several times tried to reach Putin. And then he said, it's a waste of time. I just, right. I just hear in once, well, one and uh, every time <laughs> in, uh, hope, the same story. Let's hope at some point we come to it. Meanwhile, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for your, your position and, and showing the great passion that I thought you would. Thank you. Thank you. It is time for Barrage the Farage, and Alexei is still here with me, absolutely. One viewer asks, do you agree that our efforts in Ukraine have shown just how great our country is and that we really are Great Britain, Brexit Britain? I think you've answered that already, haven't you, really? I can tell you for sure that uh, the United Kingdom shows leadership, absolutely. And I can agree that, unfortunately, European politicians do no, don't, don't show such level of leadership as uh, your leaders, well, especially Boris Johnson, because because they've uh, because they've actually made um, themselves dependent upon them. Barry asks, "You talk about offering Putin a way out. What would you offer him as a way out?" Well, uh, I think perhaps not not the destruction of his army uh, would help. And should we end the conversation very quickly, though? Should we stop the conversation about war crimes trials afterwards? Stop the conversation? Yeah. No, it couldn't be done like so, this. So we because have. So in we, this case, so, so we have to put him on trial afterwards, do we? Uh, we need to put all those who raped and killed ah. to because b without this, it's not about revenge. The individual soldiers. It's not without uh, about okay. revenge. Without this. Uh, that will be a message to others, you can do this. Yeah. We no. need to prevent it in future, you that's see, for sure. No, I get that totally. And finally, Mary asks, should whips be banned at Westminster? A very famous, though now controversial, politician called Enoch Powell once said that the whips are a necessary part of modern 20th century development, just like the sewers. On that note, I will leave you this evening.